0: Hi, and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfaw, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. This is episode two of Seduction and Scandal in Edwardian High Society. If you haven't already done so, I suggest you pause here and go back and listen to episode one first. By the end of the last episode, it was January 1910, and 24-year-old diplomat Sir Coleridge Kennard, known as Roy, was serving as a junior secretary at the British Legation in Tehran. Roy had been ordered to Iran at short notice the previous summer, by his Foreign Office superiors determined to separate him from the married woman he was having an affair with. That woman, Joy Buckley, was now living in Rome. Within months of meeting Roy, she had chosen to leave her two children and now waited for her divorce to go to court. We know all this because the Foreign Office carefully collected every scrap of documentation relating to Roy and their attempts to split him from Yoi. Every letter, every telegram, every report by embassy staff removed from official business to interfere in this private affair. The final file, now held at the UK National Archives, runs to over 150 pages. It is this remarkable detail, this peculiar obsession by a government department in the private life of a new and very junior member of its staff, that fascinated me. Was this standard policy to prevent all staff being embroiled in scandals? Or was Roy a special case? Whatever their reason, Separating the couple by a distance of around 2,000 miles initially made no difference to their feelings or intentions. Roy kept in touch with Yoi with regular letters, reassuring her of his devotion and his wish to marry her as soon as she was divorced. But then, after a letter dated 1st of January, Roy abruptly fell silent, and into the void stepped rumours, rumours that Roy had changed his mind. That he no longer wanted to marry Yoi, that he would contest her husband's allegation of adultery. And then there were more than rumours. On January 14th, just two weeks after Roy's last letter, it was confirmed to Yoi's solicitors that Roy would defend himself in the divorce suit. Unbeknownst to them, a flurry of telegrams had flown between Tehran and London the day before. The first was sent by Mrs Carew, Roy's mother. Case probably in Monday. Will you defend it? Last chance. Urgent. Mother. Roy obediently replied the same day. Yes, wish to defend it. He communicated the same to his lawyer, Mr. Holman. Will agree to my mother's wishes for defence if still possible. So, at the eleventh hour, Roy had changed his mind. Why? What had happened in the previous thirteen days? Yoy's lawyers hadn't a clue. Roy's change of direction was so sudden that they doubted he was acting according to his own wishes. The controlling hand of his mother must be at play. The only way to remove her grip was to reassure Roy. Your mother absolutely powerless if you refuse defence, the solicitors telegraphed. They were right, and Roy's lawyers knew it. On the 15th, they telegraphed him, To defend, you must file answer denying allegations misconduct or countercharging connivance of petitioner or collusion between petitioner and respondent. Your mother and Lewis, his mother's renowned society lawyer, have no evidence against husband and wife. Can you truthfully allege collusion or connivance? In other words, Roy had to prove that his and Joy's affair had been masterminded by the Buckleys to provide an excuse for them to get divorced. But Roy could not prove this. After five days' silence, he replied, Have no evidence, was counting on mother's. Do all you can, take any step you think expedient for me. The case had to go undefended. yoy knew nothing of these back-and-forth telegrams. The first firm news she had was a confirmation at the end of January that Roy was not defending the case. Her faith in him was restored. Believe in Roy whatever you do, she wrote to her solicitor. Remember, I say he has been trapped. No one on earth can shake my belief in him, and I know I am right. A week later, on the 7th of February, the Buckleys' divorce went to court. The proceedings lasted eleven minutes. A decree Nisi was pronounced, and custody of their daughter and son granted to Captain Buckley. With the divorce confirmed, Joy waited expectantly for word from Roy. For a letter of joy, for a telegram saying he was on his way to her but nothing arrived. Meanwhile in London, rumours continued to abound that Roy did not want to marry Joy. Her solicitor refused to believe this gossip, but was anxious to reassure his client. For some time past, he wrote to Roy in early February, everybody has been telling joy and me that you are tired of the situation and have determined to abandon her to her fate. I do not believe that there is one shadow of truth in this not only having regard to the ethical impossibility of any man behaving in such a way to a woman whom he ever even pretended to care for, but also having regard to what we know of you and your letters. He ended, I repeat that I agree with you, in trusting you implicitly, and in believing everything that you have said in your letters to her. But the time has come when I must tell you what has been done and said in your name, and must have your explicit repudiation of the things they have tried to saddle upon you. If by any horrible chance there should be any truth in what they say, I ask you, as man to man, to write and tell me that you have changed your mind, and intend to leave Yoi to face the fate which you have forced on her. Nothing short of this in your own hand will ever shatter her belief in you. The weeks ticked by. Roy did not reply to the letter. He did not write to Yoy. Despite his silence, Yoy wrote to her solicitor that she would not believe he had left her until he told her so to her face. On the evening of Saturday, the 19th of March, 1910, Britain's envoy to Iran, Sir George Barclay, was enjoying a small dinner party at the legation in Tehran when he was handed a note requesting him to go to his study. There he found his secretary Roy, who, according to fellow-secretary Lancelot Oliphant, was quite unnerved with fear. Roy had been dining at his own house with a friend when he was told that a lady was in his sitting-room asking to see him. It was Yoy. After two months she had given up waiting. She had travelled two thousand miles by train and boat to see him. But Roy would not see her he snuck out of the house and ran to the British legation to seek refuge. Barclay assured Roy he had done right. A note was sent back to Roy's house to inform Yoy that Roy would not see her, and by eight o'clock the next morning, Roy was packed off on a hunting trip. To avoid Roy's whereabouts being discovered, the address of his destination was divulged only to Lancelot Oliphant, who, for added security, agreed to only communicate with Roy via his groom. We know of these elaborate arrangements because Oliphant would later write a detailed twenty page report for the Foreign Office about Yoy's visit to Tehran. Hardly standard Foreign Office business, but an assignment which Oliphant appears to have taken to with relish. On the day that Roy left Tehran, Oliphant called on Yoy at her hotel, accompanied by the envoy's wife, Lady Barclay. They carried with them instructions to tell Yoy that Roy never wished to see her again and a letter addressed to Lady Barclay, confirming the same in writing. Oliphant reported that, Mrs. Buckley said the matter was quite inexplicable, she was most calm and collected, said she had received letters from Kennard dated up to 1st of January 1910, all in the same strain. Since then, none. His conduct was unintelligible, unless he had been prejudiced against her. This, she felt, was impossible, unless his own feelings had changed. In that case, why did the boy not see her and tell her so? She affirmed that she would never believe it except from Kennard himself, and she demanded to see him and hear it from his own lips. Oliphant and Lady Barclay pointed out that Kennard's two-month silence, his abrupt departure, and the letter to Lady Barclay all proved that Roy's feelings had changed. But Yoy was undeterred. She must see him, and declared, if he were really a blackguard and not influenced, she would have to shoot him. Yoy left that particular part of the conversation out of her own account of this meeting. A few weeks later she would write to Sir Charles Harding, who you may recall, from the first episode, was the most senior civil servant at the Foreign Office. She complained to him of her treatment in Tehran, particularly at the hands of Lady Berkeley, who was rather heartless, and Oliphant, who prides himself on being clear-headed and hard, In that first meeting, they kept suggesting that I should leave at once, I had only just arrived, and was very tired after nearly two weeks' continual travelling. Lady Barclay and Mr. Oliphant came to the hotel about four times, trying to persuade me to go away. I cannot understand why, as it was an entirely private affair, and anyone else would have refused to have mixed themselves in it. Lady Barclay could not have thought that her visits to my hotel were unnoticed, or that a minister's wife could interfere in such a matter without her interference being looked upon as something semi-official. The situation was getting awkward for the legation, Sir George Barclay attempted some damage control by telling Yoy that he could not interfere in private matters when she asked him for help. But the visits of his wife and secretary continued, and Barclay himself was not a mere bystander. The day after Yoy's arrival, Barclay telegraphed to Harding. Mrs. Buckley has come to Tehran, but Mrs. Carew need not worry. Kennard refuses to see the lady, and is determined to have nothing to do with her. I have sent him away shooting, and am trying to get Lady to return to England. You might tell Mrs. Carew. Mrs. Carew, as we heard in the last episode, appears to have been instrumental in getting her son posted abroad, to separate him from Yoy. Harding responded, You might tell Kay that I am pleased with his attitude, and that he is keeping his promise to me, which I knew he would do. You might let me know when the lady has safely left. I hope it will be soon. But persuading Yoi to leave was proving difficult. On one of Oliphant's visits, Yoi told him she intended to stay in Tehran, as it was proving interesting. She also insisted that Roy must marry her, and repeated her threat to shoot him if he did not. When Oliphant, in his words, called her attention to the gravity of the statement, she replied that she was, talking like a mad person, and of course never meant it. On the 23rd of March, Barclay telegraphed to Harding again. Mrs. Buckley has been giving us a terrible time. She insists on staying on, and thinks, or professes to think, that we are preventing Kennard from seeing her. Letters from Kennard written to my wife to read to her have not convinced her. What's more, he wrote that Roy's refusal to see her is making very bad impression, and she has enlisted a good deal of sympathy. By now it was clear, the only way to persuade Yoi to leave was to grant her wish for a meeting with Roy. From London, Harding gave his consent. We have done our utmost to help Kay, and we still hope that he has broken entirely with the lady." But we think that, under the circumstances reported by you, it must be left to Kay's judgment as to whether he sees the lady or not. If he decides to do so, it seems very desirable, for his own sake, that it should be in the presence of witnesses. For the purposes of an interview, if Kay decides to have one, I absolve him, for the time being, from the promise which he gave me to have nothing to do with the lady. This message, and the earlier telegram from Harding, are the first mentions in the Foreign Office file of Roy making a promise, presumably before he left London, that he would break with Yoy. He had not mentioned any promise to Yoy, and his letters to her until the 1st of January certainly do not abide by such a promise, so either his promise to Harding had been insincere, or he had been misleading Yoy for months. Roy returned to Tehran on the evening of Wednesday, 23rd of March, emboldened by Harding's blessing and a message from Oliphant that Yoy had promised to stay out of Roy's way until he came to her. That same night, Oliphant and Lady Barclay went to see Yoy again. They arrived at her room at 10.30 and found Yoy ill in bed. Undaunted, they tried to persuade her to promise to leave Tehran as soon as she had had her meeting with Roy. Yoi refused. In Oliphant's words, now that Tehran was interesting and the hotel more comfortable, she might not wish to go. There was some paper on the bed, which Oliphant handed to her, asking her to put in writing her agreement to leave after seeing Roy. She began to write at my dictation, Oliphant reported, but suddenly stopped, tore it up, and said she would not be bound. Unable to get Yoy to cave, it was finally agreed that Roy would come to see her at 5 p.m. the following day. It would be the first time Roy and Yoi had seen each other since July the previous year. On that occasion, Roy had fervently pledged his devotion to Yoi, and wrote a letter in her presence saying he would kill himself if she left him. Their meeting in Tehran could not have been more different. For one thing, they were not alone. Lancelot Oliphant was there, as a witness, and, as was his custom, Oliphant reported on all he saw. Kennard explained in cool, calm words that his decision was irrevocable, that all feelings he had ever had were changed, that it was not his mother's words which had influenced him, but incontrovertible proof had convinced him that he had been deceived by her. Mrs. Buckley protested her love and demanded his reasons. Kennard referred her to the lawyers, and after a most painful interview, prepared to leave. She appealed to me to stop him and to make him say what had changed him. On leaving the room, she threw herself down in despair, but recovering, got between him and the main door of the hotel across the courtyard, and demanded the continuance of the interview. Kennard was thus cut off from escape, and for three quarters of an hour merely repeated his words that all feelings he had ever had had changed to those of horror of her. He told her that he was taking action against her, and finally, in order to escape, agreed to tell her the nature of the action if she gave him her word to go up the steps, and, having heard his decision, to remain quiet and not impede his egress. She did, and he told her it was for collusion. If Roy's change of heart was due to believing Yoi had deceived him, then whatever proof convinced him of this must have been presented between the 1st of January, when he last wrote to Yoi, and the 13th, when he declared his wish to defend himself in the divorce case. Whatever this proof was, It had not been sufficient to bring a case for collusion in January, yet it was evidently sufficient for Roy to remain convinced of her deceit two months later. So, was there any proof? One possible scenario is that whatever he had been shown had been fabricated by his mother. This appears to have been Yoy's deduction. According to Oliphant, she was relieved when Roy accused her of collusion, saying, Thank God! Now it will be proved false! Roy's explanation also gave Yoy a glimmer of hope that he had been manipulated and could still be convinced to come back to her, as she wrote several days later to Harding, I still believe in Sir Coleridge, and that it is not from any base motive that he behaved as he did. His rage when we met was very real, and I know he has been made to believe as he said, that I did not care for him and that there was collusion. So even after hearing from Roy's own lips that their relationship was over, Yoi refused to accept the new reality. "'Nothing that they say will make me doubt him,' she wrote to Harding. "'I consider that he is the victim of a plot almost as much as I am. "'If he has been weak, he has been helped to be so "'by the attitude of the people around him.'" Yoi stayed in Tehran for another week, but Roy refused to see her again. On the 2nd of April, a relieved Barclay telegraphed Harding to inform him that Yoi had finally left. She wrote her letter to Harding from Baku, in present-day Azerbaijan, then in the Russian Empire, a stopping point on her journey back to Rome. She finished her letter by urging Harding to persuade Roy to come to her, and discuss this matter of my life, quickly. But Roy never did go to Rome. As far as I am aware, he never wrote to Joy again. Nor did he bring a case of collusion against her. That conversation at the hotel gates was the last time the pair ever saw each other. By the 15th of June, 1910, Roy was confident that Yoy was out of his life for good. He wrote to Harding, The affair was finally terminated. I hope I may be able some day to show you how I have appreciated your kindness towards me. I like Tehran immensely, and I find the work and the life here very interesting. It was almost exactly a year to the day since Roy and Yoy had run away from Paris together, since Roy had posted Harding his resignation letter. In June 1910, Harding had just been appointed Viceroy of India, the King's representative in India, and departed the Foreign Office, presumably happy in the knowledge that all his efforts to extricate Roy from a scandalous attachment had not been in vain. So why had Roy's feelings changed in such a short space of time? There is no explanation in the Foreign Office file, but there are clues which allow us to deduce a number of possibilities. First, it is possible he was convinced by evidence, whether real or forged, that Joy had deceived him. What that evidence was is a mystery. Second, it may have come down to money. At the end of January 1910, Roy's grandmother had sent a letter to Harding, informing him that, happily, his attitude as regards the lady has quite changed. Although he settled £13,000 on her before leaving for Tehran, and although she lived in his furnished apartment... She has, since, made further demands for money. As a result, Roy now happily sees things in their real light. There is no other document in the file to corroborate the grandmother's claims. A third possibility is that Roy had fallen out of love with Joy simply because that was in his character. The intensity of his passion, the possessiveness in his love letters, the threats of suicide, combined with the fast pace of their relationship, all suggest Roy was the sort of person who could fall out of love as quickly as he fell in love. Which leads us to the fourth possibility. Roy had fallen for someone else. In January 1911, Joy received news. Roy was engaged to be married, and his fiancée was none other than the daughter of Sir George and Lady Barclay. Yoy immediately wrote to Barclay, "'Many people from Tehran had written to friends of mine, saying that the probability was that Lady Barclay had acted to me as she had, owing to the fact that she intended to marry her daughter to Sir Coleridge Kennard. I had always contradicted this, thinking such inhumanity impossible. Now I hear the marriage is to take place in March.' She scorned Barclay for marrying his daughter off to a cunning madman who was using the marriage to save his position in the Foreign Office.' before adding that if Roy was not mad, then he was only marrying Barclay's daughter as a form of suicide, believing evil of me. Yoy also wrote to Harding's successor at the Foreign Office. I want you to know that I have for some time stopped my friends from doing anything to make this affair public, but as I see that I am getting no apology or explanation, I have told them that now they can act as they wish. The gloves were off. Yoy attempted to publicly shame Roy for his betrayal. And the Foreign Office for their involvement by publishing a statement of facts about the affair in early 1911. It made no difference. Joyce sent a copy to Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary. Grey did not respond. Yoy's statement of facts was placed alongside all the letters and telegrams and reports from the previous two years, and the file on Roy's scandalous involvement with a married woman was shelved in the Foreign Office. The file sat there, conspicuously among files on spies, secret intelligence activities, and military operations, for over one hundred years. Roy married Dorothy Barclay in April 1911. It was not a long marriage. Roy left his wife and their two sons in 1915 to move in with another woman. By 1918, Dorothy had divorced him on the grounds of desertion and adultery. Once again, Roy did not defend himself at the divorce court. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, photos of an ageing Roy crop up in the pages of society gossip magazines, such as Tatler, as one of the wealthy set enjoying the French Riviera. He remarried in 1924, and died in 1948. Joy spent the rest of her life in Italy. She supported herself initially by writing books, including a travelogue of her journey to Tehran, and by working as an artist's model. One artist she posed for was the sculptor Antonio Maraini. In 1912, Joy and Antonio had a son, Fosco. They married two years later. After Mussolini took power in 1922, Antonio Maraini gained national prominence. He was a favoured artist of the regime, a close associate of the secretary of the National Fascist Party and a member of the fascist-controlled parliament. Joy shared her husband's political allegiance. As I mentioned in the last episode, Joy's support for fascism was a horrifying discovery. It unavoidably impacted my view of the woman. But it also presented a question. Could we find clues to Yoi's fascism in this story from her earlier life? In one view, this seems unfair. Adultery, divorce, and being crossed in love are not uncommon experiences. They are hardly evidence of latent political extremism. But why, in this case... Did the woman leave her family for another man? And why was it not a complete surprise that she was herself left by that man? The answer may partly lie in an article Yoi wrote for the Saturday Review in 1924, which I found on the British newspaper archive. It is an account of her first meeting with Mussolini. To quote a couple of extracts, As he was speaking, I realised with a rush that I was in the presence of a man different from all other men, a really great man, a man of education in the widest sense of the word, with a stupendous brain combined with a quality of imagination. He has beautiful dark brown eyes which glow from within, clear-cut, strongly marked features, and a pale complexion, and there is, in his expression, a spiritual quality mixed with a sad gentleness when his face is in repose. Joy had fallen for Mussolini, hook, line, and sinker. She was susceptible to his charm, bought by his flattery, eager to build him into a superhuman. Are these not the same gullible tendencies that led her to fall for Roy? To believe in Roy's effusive declarations of love and threats of suicide? To be blind to the possibility that Roy could have anything other than her best interests at heart? In 1909... Joy was swept up by the charisma of a young lover. Fifteen years later, it was not inevitable, but also not completely surprising, that she fell for the charisma of the first fascist leader. Joy died in Florence in 1944. I found no evidence that she ever changed her stance on fascism. But there is an epilogue to this tale. Joy's son Fosco was not in Italy when his mother died. He rejected his parents' fascism and left Italy to escape the regime. By 1944, he and his young family were in a Japanese concentration camp because he refused to swear allegiance to Mussolini's government. After the war, Fosco became a famous anti-fascist writer and anthropologist. His daughter, Joy's granddaughter, is the renowned feminist and anti-fascist writer Dacia Maraini. It is odd to think Fosco and Dacia's lives... Never would have been, were it not, for this story of seduction and scandal in Edwardian high society. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back with a new story from the Archives on Thursday, 24th of February please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you like to listen, so you don't miss it. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, it would be really fantastic if you could spare just a few seconds to rate or review the show on your favourite podcast app, and please do recommend Archive Sleuth to your friends and family. Thank you very much for your support. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfow. The file, Sir Coleridge Kennard, Diplomat, Involvement in Divorce Case, is held at the National Archives, UK. It is available online in the collection, Secret Files from World Wars to Cold War, from Coherent Digital. Additional research was done using the British Newspaper Archive. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery, by Kevin MacLeod, and Sonatina in C Minor, by Kevin MacLeod.